Well, let me begin by telling you about a guy. Let's call him Gus. Gus was born to a Christian mother and a non-Christian father. When he was a boy, he got into a bit of mischief with some friends. They went into a neighbor's house and stole some fruit from his garden. And Gus did this not because he was hungry, but because it was rebellious. When he got a little bit older, he began to study public speaking. And just as he was emerging into adulthood, when he was around 17, 18 years old, he started to discover all the pleasures of the world that it had to offer to him. Even though his Christian mother had warned him about the dangers of a hedonistic life where you know, was, you're all about chasing sensual pleasure, pleasure, he got caught up in that very world and lived a very promiscuous life of casual sex and partying hard. Over the years, Gus began to think uh, more and more about life and philosophy. He ended up joining a religious group that taught that our bodies are a battle between good and evil and that the spirits that we have are good and the bodies that we have are bad. They are evil. And so in order to release the good from within, you had to pray on the one hand and you also had to abstain from physical pleasure on the other. You had to abstain from all of these things that Gus, Gus loved. Money, lust, wine, luxury, you know, that sort of thing. But Gus had a problem. Even though he knew that he had to do that, or he thought he had to do that, he loved women too much. That was his greatest struggle, or perhaps should I say he lusted after them too much. And so this spiraled into a great depression for Gus, as he discovered that he was unable to say no to these physical hungers that he had. Well, we'll get back to the story of Gus and hear more about him throughout the morning. But I wanted to tell you that much of his story in order to, for us to consider the question that I asked before, which is the question that I want for us to be contemplating as we uh, look at this passage. What does Christ's death and resurrection mean for our lives, especially our bodies today? What does Christ's death and resurrection mean for our lives, especially our bodies today? Because in our passage this morning, Paul addresses this very question. What are the, the implications of our faith? And he does so by answering some assumptions that the Corinthian Christians were, had. They were making about uh, the kind of freedom that they thought that they had as Christians. Well, Paul shows them in this passage that their understanding of Christian freedom is warped. And that's exactly how he begins in this passage. And so, that's how I'm going to begin. This morning, we are... The title of my sermon, as you can see, is Glorify Bod. Glorify Bod. Oh, bad Freudian slip. Glorify God in your body. And so let's open our Bibles and look at the text together. And for my first point, 
It is fettered freedom. Point number one, fettered freedom. Uh, I don't know about you, but I love the word fetter. Not the cheese, this word, fetter, F-E-T-T-E-R. We just sang it in one of my favorite songs, Come Thou Fount. O oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. A fetter, if you're unaware, is a shackle. So uh, it's what you put on a criminal if you don't want him to get away. A, a, the old ball and chain. Uh, so it might seem, at, at, then, at the first point, at, at the outset, like my first point is an oxymoron, don't you think? Fettered freedom. Isn't that a contradiction? How can you have freedom that actually shackles you to something? I don't, you know, that, that doesn't work. Well, that's exactly the point that Paul actually addresses in this very first verse. Let's read it together. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Now, you'll notice there that the phrase, all things are lawful for me, is put into quotation marks in the ESV. Uh, That's because the translators of the ESV are wanting to help us understand what Paul is doing here. Uh, Paul didn't have quotation marks in his time when he wrote, uh, so it was quite the skill, I think, to be able to discern what was was being said. And so the translators, what they've actually done is supplied them to help us understand what is happening. Now, given what Paul actually says here, and because of other evidence in terms of contextual evidence in the book itself and in the context of the society that it was written in, it's most likely that what Paul is doing is quoting a familiar saying, something that the Corinthians knew about. Uh, And so that's why they've put them there. One of the main pieces of evidence for this is the fact that Paul actually quotes almost this exact same phrase again later on in his letter and then refutes it in a very similar way. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, you see it's almost exactly the same and he treats it almost exactly the same way. Now, there are also good reasons to believe that uh, this was a saying that the Corinthian church uh, had adopted from Corinthian elites Uh, because there is some other uh, evidence from that time that seems to show that this was a prevailing attitude amongst those who were higher up in society in Corinth. Basically, the attitude was was that if you were somebody who had the the means, the, the, the riches, the power to be able to do whatever you want, well, you should do whatever you want. You should, all things should be lawful to you. You've earned it. And it's likely that once again, as we've seen over and over again in Corinth, in this letter, as Paul addresses it, that the church was starting to bring those Corinthian, those worldly attitudes into the church and starting to justify them and say, yeah, it's okay for Christians to be like this. Once again, here is another example of the church doing exactly that. And so Paul wants to qualify those statements. All things might be lawful for me, he says, but not all things are helpful and I will not be dominated by anything. Not everything is helpful. I will not be dominated by anything, he says in response to this phrase. Now, when I first read that, I was, I was like, what? Really? Like, really, Paul? That's all you have to say to people who, who, who say this kind of thing? Not all things are helpful? 
like, especially in light of what you've had to address in terms of the, the rampant sin that's going on in this church, you're just going to say not all things are helpful? Uh, what am I, you know, what am I going to do with, with somebody who, who comes to me and says this exact thing, who, who says, you know, well, Galatians 5 says, for freedom Christ has set us free. So that means, well, I, I can do whatever I like. Am I going to respond by saying, not all things are helpful? Hmm. Well, to take such a view, to suggest that that's what that means, that because you're free in Christ, you can do whatever you like, is to miss, miss large swaths of the Bible. And indeed, it is also to miss what Paul is saying right here in this passage. That's why in Galatians 5, he, uh, he not only says, for freedom Christ has set us free, but he says, stand firm therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, the slavery of sin. That's why Paul also says, not just, not all things are helpful, but I will not be dominated by anything. I will not be mastered by everything, by anything. Paul here is talking about the slavery of sin. He's talking about being dominated by sin. He's talking about the fact that Christian freedom isn't unfettered freedom. It's not like a sandbox video game for all you gamers out there where you can just play the game and you can do whatever you like. There's no real purpose to it. There's no real aim. You can just kind of cruise around. No, Paul is saying it's like a linear video game where there is a story, there is a quest, there is an adventure, there is a purpose to what you are supposed to be doing. And if you ask my friend Chris, he will tell you that's how a video game is meant to be played. It's meant to be linear. So it is with the Christian life. All things are lawful for me is a maxim that doesn't work for a Christian if you think that it means, well, because God has saved me from my sin, I can just now live a life of sin. I can do whatever I want. Christian life means life is a sandbox. Christian freedom means life is a sandbox. Well, not only is that silly, it is actually false. It's a false idea to think that freedom buys you a world without boundaries. There is no freedom that a person can have that is not still fettered to something. Let me say that again. There is no freedom that a person can have that is not still fettered to something. As one of our own pastors, Roger, often says, or at least I've heard that he says it often, I actually haven't heard him say it, if you say yes to something, then you're saying no to something else. If you're saying yes, yeah, getting nods. Yes, he says it. He says it often. If you say yes to something, then you're saying no to something else. If you say that you are free to do whatever you want, then that immediately rules out a different kind of life. One that produces freedom from certain boundaries. For example, being fettered by God's design for marriage to be committed to your spouse to the exclusion of all others gives you a kind of freedom within your marriage that enables you to build trust and deep love for one another over the long run. Without those boundaries, to think of them as just helpful tips to a healthy marriage actually prevents you from being able to have the kind of freedom that married couples who have stayed true to God's design enjoy. 
You will be shackled, if you choose to take this view of freedom, by distrust, by doubt, and fear of betrayal. So here's an important thing for us to grasp. All freedom is fettered. All freedom is fettered. It's not a choice of being free or fettered. It's not, saying, it's not like you're saying, well, Christianity is, is you know, this straitjacket religion and I'm going to go and do whatever I want and I'm going to be free. No. That, that, they're not the choices that you have to make. The choice that you have to make is between the, being fettered by the so-called freedom of sin or being fettered by the freedom that is in Christ. This was the dilemma that our friend Gus had. As he grew to understand God more and he realized that he needed to give up his lust for women, he found in the end that he was actually dominated by it. He was mastered by it. He could not give it up. As much as he wanted to love God, he could not let this sin And this is Paul's point. If you say, all things are lawful for me, and you're using it as an excuse to be sexually immoral, then you're actually dominated by that so-called freedom and by that sin. In your mind, that will be a hunger that must be sated, just like your physical appetite. Unless you feed it, you'll die. That's a common perspective that people have about sexual intimacy today. You'll think that you cannot live without it, and you'll think that you've never truly lived unless you satisfy it. That's exactly what Paul goes after next. And so my second point this morning is that as Christians, we are Jesus-joined. Let's read the next couple of verses from verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Now, this next Corinthian saying uh, is pretty clearly a euphemism. If you don't know what a euphemism is, it's a word or a phrase that means one thing on the surface... Uh, but actually has a deeper, hidden meaning that usually everybody knows. Uh, So in this case, given what Paul says immediately after this, and given the context of the passage and the culture, it seems quite clear that the Corinthians were using this phrase to justify their immorality. The fact that the word stomach was sometimes used to refer to the whole body, and that Paul responds to this quote by then talking immediately uh, about sexual immorality, shows that it's more li- most likely that that's what the Corinthians were doing. They were using this phrase to justify their actions. But before we go on, I need to make some brief comments about the translation. Uh, as I mentioned before, the quotation marks have been added by uh, translators, and it's the same here. And in this passage, there's a little bit of debate about where the quotation actually stops. So in the ESV, you'll notice the quotation stops after the word food. Uh, But in the NIV and the NET, they've actually finished the quotation at the end of 
God will destroy both one and the other, as you can see there on the screen. Now, if the ESV is correct, then Paul is saying that God will destroy both stomach and food in this life, and then his point would be that because God is Lord over our bodies, and He will eventually destroy both body and spirit, then we must not engage in sexual immorality. That would be the point of the ESV uh, way it translates it. Now, if the NIV and the NET are correct, then Paul is saying that this is what the Corinthians were saying, that whole line. And they were using it as justification for doing what they wanted. And so in this view, the Corinthians were saying, you know, my body uh, does... uh, what it needs to satisfy the hunger, and because God is actually going to destroy both body and and food, He's going to destroy all of that, well, why why should He care about what I do with it? And so, you see that they are using that whole phrase as justification for what they're saying. Now, this view is actually a little bit like our friend Gus, in that his view of the spirit and the body being two separate things. But whereas Gus thought because his body was bad, he should try and deny it and try and, uh, you know, not give his body what it wanted, the Corinthians were doing the opposite. They had the same view of that separation, but they were doing the opposite and saying, well, because the body is, is inconsequential, because it doesn't matter, then we should be able to do whatever we want with it. Now, there's not a huge amount of difference between those two views uh, about where the quote ends in terms of what what it means. Paul's larger point still remains basically the same, and we're going to get to that in a moment. And so, it's not, it's not like this change uh, in how you see these things suddenly makes what Paul is saying, you know, something completely different. But I do think that the NIV and the NET get it right. The main reasons are because I think this does justice to the Corinthian thinking that Paul is addressing, the attitudes that he is actually uh, dealing with, and also because of the parallelism through these two verses. Nerd alert. Uh, Have a look at the screen, and I will show you how I've tried to display that for you. So, as you can see, uh, Paul responds to this quote with an intentional mirroring of what he's just said. So, you can see there, food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, his response later on is, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And then he goes on with the rest of their quote, and God will destroy both one and the other, and his response is, and God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by His power. And so the crux of what Paul is actually saying here is, Corinthians, you you think the body doesn't matter because God is going to destroy it all one day. You think that, but how wrong you are. Our bodies do matter, Paul says. Our bodies do matter to God. And they matter because God raised Jesus' physical body from the dead He didn't just raise him spiritually. He didn't just raise Jesus as some kind of phantom. No, he raised his actual physical body, that same body that was roaming the Galilean countryside for years, that same body that had its its hands nailed to the cross, that same body God raised from the dead. 
And he will do the same with our bodies. This is something that Paul will elaborate on later in the letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a very well-known chapter about resurrection. But here, Paul draws out the implications of this point. Your body, because it is important, he says, because it does matter to God, and because you have surrendered to Him, it is not yours. It no longer belongs to you. It is the Lord's. And it's not something that He's just going to burn up one day and then throw on the rubbish heap. For those who have turned to Christ and turned from their sin, God will resurrect their bodies with the same power that resurrected Christ's. And now Paul gets even more specific. Let's read from verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Once again, notice the parallels here in what Paul is doing. And once again, nerd warning. Paul is intentionally responding. Well, in this case, he's not responding. He's just paralleling what he's saying. (laughs) He's intentionally uh, drawing parallels and mirroring his points. Now, this uh, this isn't the prettiest slide in the world, uh, but I hope it helps you understand the structure of Paul's thought here as as he's written this out. This one you've got to read across. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? He asks, then immediately following, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? He says, never. This is an instruction. And then he uses the same question in, in both instances that he used several times in the passage that we looked at last week, as you might remember. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. And he gives another command at the end of that. Do you not know? He's saying to the Corinthians, how could you not know this? How could you miss this? And if you do know this, would you take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never, he says. If your bodies are members of Christ, then surely it is self-evident how wrong it would be to unite a member of Christ's body with a prostitute. Now, Paul obviously brings up this example for a reason. He's not addressing particular people or particular situations as he's done in the last, uh, since chapter 5, or actually since the start of the letter, really. But he's clearly talking about this example because they were likely involved in it. It's also uh, possible that he is setting up what is about to be said in chapter 7. Now, as I've said uh, in previous weeks, when Paul uses the term sexual immorality, he's, he's 
not talking about a specific sexual sin. He's talking about any sexual sin that lies outside of God's design. That is between a husband and a wife in a monogamous marriage. But prostitution, obviously, is specifically in view in this passage. And so New Testament scholar Bruce Winter thinks that in the background is yet another Corinthian practice uh, that has made its way into the church that the elites were involved in. Basically, if you came from good stock in your family, you're a young man who hit kind of graduation age. Once you got there, uh, there would be young, uh, sorry, drunken parties at your disposal that you could involve yourself in. And often at the end of that party, which was, you know, engorging yourself in food and wine and all that kind of stuff, and then at the end of it, they would often bring along prostitutes for the guests. And if that is the case, then it makes sense, and makes sense of what Paul is saying here and the fact that he quotes Corinthian sayings. But regardless of the specific context that this arises from, the point remains the same. If you are a Christian, you are joined to Jesus, and that includes your body. What you do with your physical body is done as part of Jesus' spiritual body. And if that's the case, why in the world would you commit this sin? And Paul goes into the theology of it in case they've missed it. He says, maybe you don't know this. So let me clarify it for you. The one who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. And then he quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. They shall become one flesh. Now, if you're familiar with Genesis 2, 24, or even just looking at the whole verse there, you'll know that it is talking about marriage, the union of marriage, which is probably why Paul leaves out the first half of that quote, because he's not suggesting that by... Um, sleeping with a prostitute, suddenly you're married to them. That's not the point. The point is that he's saying that sexual union was not intended for one-night stands. It was not intended for casual flings. That's not how God designed it. That's not how He created it. He created it as something that was meant to be shared between a husband and a wife for a lifetime. You can't treat the physical union of two people as something that is of just no consequence. You can't treat it as something that, you know, just happens. As Paul would say later, to do so, to do that, is to sin against your own body. Paul says if you are a Christian, then you are joined to the Lord. You are a member of Christ's body and you are one spirit with Him. Another way that Paul puts this in his letters is by saying you are in Christ. He says that multiple times throughout his letters. You are in Christ. You are part of His body. This imagery of of members and body Paul uses it later on in his letter in chapter 12 where he urges the Corinthians once again to be united. It's a common image. It's one that we consider as we think about what it means to be part of Christ's body. You are now in Him if you have put your faith in Him. You're now one spirit with Him. 
And if that's the case, you need to flee from sexual immorality. Now, I get the feeling, probably, that most of us aren't going to be struggling with the cultural practice of having prostitutes at the end of a party, right? I'm pretty sure that is not okay with most people in our society. But as I said before, we need to flee from all kinds of sexual immorality. Flee from it. The same way that Joseph fleed from Potiphar's wife when she tried to seduce him and ran out of the house, flee. Don't just justify your actions in the early stages of temptation, thinking that you'll be able to stop, you know, once you hit the red zone. Don't think that it's just a harmless relationship with a work colleague. Don't think that it's a harmless bit of fantasy or daydreaming or that it's just a little bit of indulgence on TV. I mean, after all, everybody's watching Bridgerton, right? Said no one ever. So, you know, I don't want to be left out of the loop, you know, and I, can't, I can just fast forward the bad bits of that show. Cut off all sexual temptation before it starts. Flee. That is how you flee. Do whatever you need to so that you don't put yourself in that position. Put your computer in the main living room. Install accountability software on all your devices. Don't flirt with that colleague. Train your eyes to look away from scantily clad women. Stop indulging in romance novels. Set good dating boundaries. Foster honesty and trust and a healthy relationship with your spouse. Get your brothers and sisters in Christ to keep you accountable. Flee. You must flee. Not just because I'm telling you to do so, not just because God is telling you to do so, and in order to be a good Christian, you know, you need to make sure that you obey His rules. Not just because if you get addicted to porn, it will have create problems for you later on in life. Not just because fornication could impact your marriage later on. Not just because having an affair could ruin your marriage or your family or your career. Do it because you are joined to Jesus. Don't you see? That is the ultimate motivation. That is the only motivation that is going to last. Every other motivation to flee sexual immorality, you could argue, just has you know, some subjective benefits and I could choose to you know, take it or leave it. But if you know that God loves you, if you know that He sent His Son to die for you and that He will one day raise your body to life, and that you will enjoy pleasure and ecstasy in Him forever, then that makes the pleasures and the ecstasies of this world look like delighting in slugs by comparison. Why would you do that? Flee from sexual immorality. Flee. You are joined to Jesus and your body is His and you are one spirit with God. So flee. I know how difficult this is. Especially for guys. 
but certainly not exclusively for guys. Our friend Gus, he knew this. As I said before, as he, and as he came to know God more and the, the desire to follow God more began to just slowly outweigh his, his lust for women and the world, he desperately pleaded with God by saying, God, please make me resist these temptations. But not yet. The temptation to sexual sin is always lurking and waiting to drag us down into its depths. Our hearts are so easily deceived and drawn towards it. And that is why we must flee. But you know, it's not just sexual immorality that we must flee, is it? There are many sins that involve our bodies that we can be dragged into. And so we need to be just as vigilant in the fight against them. If you're prone to spending too much money on luxurious things, if you're prone to having a few too many drinks, if you're prone to gluttony and overeating, if you're prone to laziness, if you're prone to greed and working too much and overworking so that you can have more money, put the same steps in place that I've just described to resist the temptation to flee from immorality, to flee from sin. Don't let yourself move closer and closer to the trap. Don't let yourself just be slowly edged into something that will destroy you. But resist it from the outset. Cultivate an ultimate delight in the Lord by spending time in prayer, spending time in the Word, spending time in His church. And ask your brothers and sisters to keep you accountable prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Because your body is the Lord's. And it was bought with a price. And that's our final point this morning. Bought bodies. Let's read from the second half of verse 18. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Well, before we dive into this section, I need to make one final comment about translation. 
The first part of the first sentence here has <clears throat> proven to be quite the puzzle for interpreters over the ages. Once again, there's an insertion here that is seeking to make sense of the text. The word other in that sentence is not actually in the original Greek. If you're not using one of our blue Bibles, you might even have a little note there, a little footnote that says it could be translated as every sin, and so omitting the word other. And so you'll see here in the NRSV that that is what they have done, left the other out, every sin. Now, the addition of the word other uh, is, is not just something that translators have done because, you know, otherwise uh, the sentence wouldn't make sense. And so, oh, I don't want people to freak out. And, you know, there's no grand conspiracy, just in case you're wondering if you're having, you know, doubts, you're a bit skeptical about some of these things. There's no grand conspiracy that translators are, you know, seeking to smooth over or, or mask the problems in the Bible that, you know, don't, don't make sense so that people can. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Uh, that's, that's not happening. There is actually a grammatical case for including the word other, which we can find an example of in Matthew chapter 12, verse 31, where Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Here you can clearly see uh, that Jesus, when He says every sin will be forgiven, uh, doesn't mean every sin because he then goes on in the very next breath to say, except this one, all right? And so there is, a, a, you know, some pre precedence to be able to say that, that grammatically uh, Paul could be intending this in our passage. And so thus, to take this translation would be to assume that Paul is saying that sexual sin is somehow different in character to other sins, so every other sin, he's saying, um, is not a sin against the body. And so he's, to take this translation would be to say that somehow sexual sin is uniquely against the body in a way that other sins that might be against the body, such as gluttony or drunkenness, are not. Well, along comes New Testament scholar Andy Nacelli from Bethlehem College, who recently wrote a journal article where he has pulled together different strands and argued rather convincingly that what Paul here is doing is actually quoting yet another Corinthian saying. Now, I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of the argument. If that is the kind of thing that interests you, you can come and chat to me about it afterwards, or you can even Google the article, which is online uh, and on his website. Basically, it comes down to the fact that leaving the word other out actually makes the best sense of the grammar and the structure of the passage. And as well as the theology of the passage and the Corinthian attitudes that Paul is addressing here in this passage. Now, uh, other scholars have pointed out this possibility, uh, but Nacelli's article is fairly recent and it's probably why the vast majority of translations haven't gone with it or even put it as a footnote, as a possible translation. Uh, however, the NET uh, has done exactly this. They have decided to opt for this translation and done, as you can see, uh, what Nacelli is advancing. That actually Paul, in the very start of this sentence, is quoting a Corinthian saying, every sin a person commits is outside of the body. Needless to say, uh, I wouldn't be telling you all this if I didn't think that that was the correct way of understanding the text. 
now, just as an aside, um, these sorts of debates happen all the time in scholarly material. Uh, this is a, the first time that I've brought it up as we've preached through 1 Corinthians, um, uh, simply because I think it was important enough to bring up. Um, as I have said previously, uh, you can trust your translation. Uh, and also, as I have said, uh, the, the larger overall point is not lost, even in something like this. But what this does is it shifts the emphasis. So you see, what Paul is doing now, when understanding this phrase as a Corinthian saying, is that he's dealing with another Corinthian assumption. And that assumption is that every sin a person commits is outside the body. Do you see why theologically there is, a, there is some convincing uh, material there? This makes sense of what they thought. Because God is going to destroy the body, as he has already said, because, God, uh, because sin is being committed outside the body, then what I do with my body shouldn't be counted as sin. Everything is permissible. All things are lawful for me. And Paul says, no, 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 no. He counters that false assumption by saying that the sexually immoral person sins against their own body. Why? Well, our connecting word, or, tells us why in verse 19. And what does that say? Or, do you not know, there it is again, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? The temple in the Old Testament, of course, was the place where God manifested His presence to His people. It was the center of Israelite religion and symbolized that God was with them. And Paul has used this image before in chapter 3 of our letter, you might remember a few months ago, and also uses it in his other letters to describe the church. Here, he, he focuses that torch beam and he says, not only is the church the temple, but your body, Christian, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is within you. God has given you the Holy Spirit. He has poured the Holy Spirit into your heart, into your life. And so therefore, your body is a temple. You have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Do you realize that those pages and those pages of laws in the Old Testament, including the ones that have, you know, all sorts of instructions about how to do right sacrifices and do temple worship correctly, that all of those were for the purpose of Israel worshiping a holy God rightly. They were for the purpose of displaying to the world the holiness of God. Do you know that? Well, you, Christian, are now that temple. Just as the church is that temple, your body is also that temple. 
He has come into you and he now works powerfully within you moment by moment, day by day, month by month, year by year to keep making you holy, to keep making you more and more like Christ. And he'll keep doing that until the day you die when he'll complete that work and he will rid your mortal body of all sin, clothing you with immortality. Your body is a temple of the Spirit. And now if you're visiting and you're not a Christian this morning, that might make no sense to you at all. Well, I hope that the final sentences of this passage help clear it up for you. Let's have a look from the second half of verse 19. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. How is it even possible that everything that I have just said over the last 40 minutes or so could even be achievable? How? Because as Christians, we are not our own. We are not our own. And we were bought with a price. We've been bought through Jesus' perfect life and his sacrificial death for our sin on a Roman cross. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the reason he needed to do that, as Romans 6.23 tells us, that the wages of sin is death. That is, your sin, my sin, is deserving of God's just wrath as a penalty in hell. But the rest of that verse goes on to say, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That means that when we repent of our sin and when we believe in Jesus, we are saved by His grace. When we put our faith in Him, we are saved by Jesus' death on the cross because on that cross, Jesus received the penalty of sin on Himself for all who believe. And that is how God bought you. That is how He paid the price for you. When we sing that Jesus paid it all, that is what we're talking about. And just like a slave is bought from a market, you have been bought with Jesus' blood. Now that might sound a bit harsh, and you might think to yourself, as a 21st century Australian, I'm no one's slave. But remember what we said before, you will be a slave to something. You will, you cannot escape that. It's going to either be your own passions and your own desires and your own wants and your own vices that you will be a slave to or you will be a slave to God. 
then if you haven't turned from your sin and trusted in Christ yet, do so today. It is costly. There is no doubt about that. But He is good. He is good. And so it's because of what He has done, because of what Christ has done, because of the fact that we were once dead in sin and slaves to it, but Jesus bought us with His own blood that we now glorify Him in our bodies. It is because of that truth, that reality, that saving grace that we may now glorify God. You see, if you haven't been bought, if you haven't turned from sin, if you haven't trusted in Christ, if you haven't seen how good God is, then such a command is going to feel like a great burden to you. It's going to feel so difficult to have to, have to give up all of these things that I really want, that I would really like to have. You'll say all sorts of things like, oh, you Christians who want to make rules about what you're supposed to do with your bodies, you know, you guys are just so legalistic and you're such killjoys. You're not even going to let me watch Bridgerton or Game of Thrones or whatever it is. And I get that these things that we need to discern with Christian prudence are, are, are difficult. We've got to think wisely about them with cross-shaped wisdom. And that's why we do it as brothers and sisters in the church, as we seek to glorify God with our bodies. But at bottom, when you've tasted and when you've seen that the Lord is good, when you've truly appreciated the depths of your own depravity, but have also seen and marveled at the glory of His grace, and His great love, when you see that, then such a command that Paul ends with here, to glorify God in your body, is no longer a burden. I'm not talking about the fact that it will be a struggle. I'm not talking about the fact that you'll sometimes fail, and you'll need to come before God, and you'll again seek His forgiveness, and He will forgive you. Bearing a cross obviously comes with its share of splinters. It will be challenging. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that the person who's been redeemed has been bought by God, has received the Holy Spirit, and as a result, yearns to be holy. Yearns to glorify God in their body. As a result, as the rest of Galatians 5 reminds us, we live by the Spirit and we walk in step with the Spirit and we daily die to sin and grow in the fruit of the Spirit. For the Christian, this isn't a burden because we realize that we are no longer our own. Our bodies are no longer our own. They belong to Him. Jesus has bought them. Well, we must now return to our friend Gus and hear about what happened to him. You see, Gus began going to church and he sat under the preaching of a man named Ambrose who helped him realize that the gospel was a call to turning away from sin 
and trusting in Jesus. But he couldn't do it. His love for the world was strong. His inner turmoil racked him with grief as he longed to turn to God and yet he just couldn't make the leap. He just, even though he knew that God was good, even though he knew that, that in his heart of hearts that would he, that's what he wanted, he still wrestled in his own soul with the desire, with the love, with the lust for the flesh, for the world, for these things that he wanted. And so one night, as he, as he was grieved by this and troubled in his soul, he went out into a courtyard with his friend, Olypius, where he wept and he pleaded with God to change him. And in that moment, he heard the voice of a little child from next door. He wasn't even sure as he reflected on it later. Didn't know where it was from. And this child was singing a tune with the words, pick it up and read. Pick it up and read. And Gus took this to be a sign from God. So he went to his Bible and he just opened it to a random page. And there his eyes fell on this verse. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I don't know about you, but I don't know anyone who has been converted by Romans 13, 13. But in that moment, the Holy Spirit flooded Gus's heart. And he knew, he knew that it was worth giving up everything for him. This is how one of the most influential people in Christianity's history was converted in 386 AD. Gus is none other than Augustine, who would become a bishop and a theologian whose writings over a thousand years later would spark the Reformation. And he would later write in his book, Confessions, which is a book uh, of his own journey and a book devoted to God. He would write these words concerning his conversion. When he says you, he's talking about God. The effect of your converting me to yourself was that I did not now seek a wife and had no ambition for success in this world. Augustine knew the cost of following Jesus. And he eventually came to know that it was a cost worth paying. No price that you might have to pay in turning away from your sin could compare to the cost that he paid to buy you. And no loss that you might 
encounter that you might experience in turning away from your sin could compare to the gain (laughs) that you will have in him. He is worth it. He is worth it. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Will you glorify him today? Let's pray. Our Father, we confess we confess that so easily our hearts drift in the direction of the Corinthians. We confess that too easily We forget all that Christ has done for us. Too easily, we forget that His blood has bought us. Father, grant us your grace. Forgive us our sin. Tune our hearts to sing your praise. And Lord, may we glorify you in everything, in our bodies, in our lives, with every ounce of energy, with every millisecond of life, May we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.